This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and it is convention time in Canada. We have the AMEBC convention. We have PDAC coming up. We had the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference this week with that hilarious Stephen Harper interview. We are working on trying to get that for you for next week, so don't go run out and find it because I'm, we may be playing it next week. I'm in talks with uh, the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and uh, it was great. Stephen Harper, you know, he's a very thoughtful person. You know, he is an interesting interview. Like, you know, people can say what they will about Stephen Harper, but he is an interesting interview, a very thoughtful person. And uh, yeah, so lots going on. We have the transition of power. I still feel like I'm still waiting for the next shoe to drop on that one. It's like, I don't know. It's not over until it's over with Trump. But let's see. Maybe it's really just kind of ending. And yeah, so lots going on. We have a great article also. And Alicia Hyatt from the Canadian Mining Journal wrote a great article. So we're going to cover that. And also this week, I am going to be moderating a panel at CIM Sudbury, and it's on nickel. So hopefully I'm the, you know, I don't know if you should have the person in the room that kind of knows least about nickel deposits in Sudbury (laughs) moderating. But let's, you know, let's see how well I do. I'm up for the challenge. They have been prepping me. So let's see how it goes. I'm sure we can get something kind of entertaining out of it. I, my concern is I make it too simple for that crowd because they may be, but let's see. Also, speaking of PDAC, which is right around the corner, again, it's virtual this year. Do not forget, obviously because of the pandemic, do not forget that you still have three days to get in the Northern Miners PDAC supplement, which is the main program guide for PDAC. So you have until January 22nd, which is this week. I think I I was just at the countdown clock. It said three days and something like 10 hours. So the clock is ticking. Simply go to our contact page and find and get in contact with Joe Crofts or Michael Winter. And that's J-C-R-O-F-T-S at northernminer.com or mwinter at northernminer.com. Either of those guys, our sales team, can help you with getting into that issue, because if you do want to be in it, you have to act pretty quickly. And it is probably our most popular issue of the year, the PDAC issue. Usually at the convention, it's just, you know, they just print a million of these things and they give them out. Yeah. So let's see what they do this year. If you're curious, go contact Michael or Joe. So that is also happening. So lots going on. You know, I again, I feel the optimism is coming back. I think people are just you know, back in October, I was th- sort of thinking by February, everything was going to start to be normal. I think a lot of people did back then. You got the vaccine news. Okay, 2021 is the year. It's looking a little slower than we hoped, but China's economy has come back quite strong. Make of that what you will. And commodities continue to show a lot of strength, as you'll see in our metal section. So there's a ton to get to today. And lest we forget, uh, there's this great panel that Carl A. Williams, our senior reporter, did at the Global Mining Symposium, the last one in November, on the cloud. And 
I've been wanting to get to this for weeks now, and it's a really interesting, and again, I just consider it like crucial, elemental, essential knowledge for people in a modern 21st century mining company, big or small. So must listen, fascinating. We even have a guy from Amazon Web Services. So what more can you ask for? And the other two guys are super knowledgeable on the subject. So it's a great conversation. It's a great panel. So that is coming up. So a blockbuster show. And let me tell you, there's lots waiting in the wings here for content. So lots of exciting stuff to get to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. And you can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, there was a story that was missed over Christmas holidays, and it was the resolution of the Cardinal Resources saga. I did a search just the other day. I was like, is that still going on? It has been resolved. Shandong, remember Shandong Gold and Norgold were competing for it. And then a local group out of Ghana came in and they were making a bid. And I was most sympathetic with them, full disclosure, just because they're the locals. But what happened was that Shandong ended up taking it. So just a quick little look. I found this on Kitco. After a year-long tussle, Shandong Gold Mining has won the battle for ownership of Cardinal Resources after winning a 50% interest in the West African-focused company. The firm beat out fellow would-be purchasers Norgold Engineers and Planners Company and Dongshan Investment in the takeover tussle. This gives Shandong a controlling interest of Cardinal and its Nabdini Gold Project in Ghana, Africa. They closed the takeover bid on December 23rd. Chief Executive Nikolai Zelensky said the takeover offers for Cardinal have played out over an extended period, but ultimately resulted in a strong outcome for all shareholders. So just a quick update on that. So Shandong triumphs. Now, it sounds like they only got 50%. It's not super clear here, but that is what happened. Now, turning to Roundup, uh, Alicia Hyatt wrote this great summary of Robert Friedland's opening remarks for MEBC's Remote Roundup. Remote because it's taking place virtually, I think for the first time in their history. And if we turn to that article, the Association for Mineral Exploration to open up its Remote Roundup, its first virtual conference in the event's 38-year history, with special guest speakers that included a keynote talk from Robert Friedland, founder and executive co-chairman of Ivanhoe Mines. Speaking from Singapore, where the mining entrepreneur noted he has been stuck for the past 10 months, Friedland's address touched on a number of hot topics, including ESG, increasing demand for battery minerals for the green economy, and the importance of junior mining companies. Starting with the current state of affairs for miners, Friedland noted that investors have largely abandoned mining and flocked to the tech space, notably investments in broadband internet the cloud, and other disruptive technologies over the past 20 years. Quote, the mining industry has been down for such a long time 
that most participants forgot what up looks like. But Friedland said miners would soon have their revenge, noting that many disruptive technologies heavily rely on metals. He added that now that the world has gone through the, quote, profound shock of COVID-19, people are realizing that there will be a huge demand for certain metals in the post-COVID world. Quote, this begins the era of the revenge of the miner. Now, for you longtime listeners, you'll remember that Robert Friedland had this huge Star Wars opening to last year's PDAC to his speech, and he was calling it the revenge of the miners or the revenge of the miner. And so he is continuing with that shtick, for lack of a better word. And uh, it was pretty entertaining, actually. So, yeah, so it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say more of the same, but it's, uh, you know, Green New Deal. So Freeland, he's being consistent, and he's pretty heavy on ESG. Quote, the countervailing pressure to meet very high ESG standards in mining is going to make the whole enterprise even more interesting and difficult to do properly. So, welcome to the new world. The situation is hopeless, but it's not serious for the miners. It is possible to mine responsibly in a better way, and we as an industry have to find a way to do that. He added that the face of the industry that will solve these issues is changing. Quote, it's not just going to be an enterprise for the old white guys from Canada. There's going to be women in mining, and there's going to be people of every color, race, and description. Mining is going to be required to help change this little planet that we're living on. And continuing on down the article, quote, there will be no more one price for copper. There will be no more one price for gold. Everything will be priced in relation to its ESG components and be priced in relation to how much global warming gas is created in making that commodity because we're going to head to a price on carbon. The minute you put a price on carbon, every mine in the world will have its end product priced according to how deleterious it is or how less deleterious it is on the global environment. And he continues also, in a circular economy, mining has to reinvent itself as being part of that cycle, and that means differential pricing and smarter markets. So that is just a taster. If you want to read more, just go to northernminer.com. Robert Friedland opens remote Roundup. Also in that article, you'll find a link to roundup.amebc.ca and where to register. So go to their website if you're still interested. It goes through January 22nd, so you still have time. And if you're curious to learn more, there's a really great interview we did a few episodes ago with the head of AMEBC and one of its board members, and they talked about, it was basically a preview of the show, and that I would also call evergreen content. Continuing on, now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but, you know, Love or hate Rio Tinto, they sure have a lot going on. I have three stories here, and I'm not going to go deep into all of them, but just because Rio Tinto has been this kind of, what shall we call it, case study on this show, let's take a look at, like, I just, like, they're fun to follow, in a sense, because, you know, like, you really get a sense, say, like, with these three stories coming up. I'll, I'll just read the headlines quickly. Rio Tinto looming talks with Mongolia to decide Oyutulgoy's fate. So, Big controversy in Mongolia about what to do with the mine. The company has one vision. The country has another. Uh, they Rio Tinto to keep New Zealand aluminum smelter until 2024. So head over to New Zealand and there's a massive aluminum smelter that they're going to keep going. We have an interesting image of that. It looks like a beautiful part of the world. And then Rio Tinto to open North America's first scandium 
plant in June. So this company, again, love them or hate them, they sure have a lot going on. So that new CEO sure has a lot on his plate. I, you know, it would be fun to just interview him after everything that's happened. Uh, maybe we'll try and do that. Maybe we'll try, but how does a guy like this have time? Well, let's see. Maybe he does. So I just wanted to touch on those. Uh, in a sense, the headline says kind of, oh, we really need for that. And if we go to our following story, we have a story on Barrick and they have met their 2020 production guidance. And remember, it started out at 4.8 to 5.2 million ounces of gold. And after Pergera was shut down, they revised it down to 4.6 to 5 million ounces of gold for the year that they were aiming for. And they've got 4.8 million ounces of gold. Mark Brissot hits his target. And it's always fun to just sort of track just how much uh, gold people are producing. And so 4.8. So I think you can call it a win. Let's take a closer look, though. This is by Canadian Mining Journal staff. In the fourth quarter, the company's mines churned out a total of 1.2 million ounces of gold and 119 million pounds of copper for total sales of 1.19 million gold ounces and 108 million pounds copper. Fourth quarter, gold output was higher when compared with the 1.16 million ounces generated in the third quarter, mainly due to, quote, a strong performance from Pueblo Viejo, the ramp-up of mining operations at Bullian Hulu, and ongoing improvements at Turquoise Ridge. You know, I think, say, like, oh, they're ramping up operations, strong performance. My theory is if they start falling behind on stuff, Mark Bristow is the kind of guy who will speed things up. And when he, he doesn't want his word to be broken is sort of my impression. Like he doesn't want to put out a target and then fall underneath it because that's on him too. That is on him. So they were speeding things up in the fourth quarter, I guess, to make their targets. All in sustaining costs for the last quarter of the year are expected to be three to 5% lower than the $966 per ounce realized in the third quarter. So, I mean, here gold is trading at above $1,800, and their cost is 3 to 5% lower than $966 per ounce. And then you look at the millions of ounces they're producing. These gold companies, pretty impressive. So, yeah, so we're going to try and catch their conference call. We almost need two podcasts a week to get everything, but let's not go there. Let's, one, is, one is probably plenty. Uh, so, Barrick meets its targets, and Lucera have found a massive 341-carat white diamond, and that was at its Karoe mine in Botswana. Analysts are valuing it at more than $10 million, and if you go to the northernminer.com website, you'll see a massive diamond with what looks like binoculars or, I guess, magnifying optical device beside it and yeah you see basically a piece of ice that's a rock so that's what 341 carat diamond looks like uh, BMO capital markets analyst Rai Raj said that based on past prices for similar sized stones the new diamond could sell for more than 10 million dollars quote the continued recovery of the significant high value stones from the south lobe further highlights the importance of Karoe underground expansion 
He also highlighted a, quote, significant, end quote, revenue potential for Lucera this year with the sales process from the 549 carat and the 998 carat diamonds recovered in 2020, expected to be completed in 2021. And they just had their mining license renewed for another 25 years, which will allow them to continue expanding their underground Kuroway project. So Lucera, you know, keeping things interesting on the diamond side of things. And finally, silver is, you know, you know, Hecla. So Lucky Friday ramp up boys Hecla's 2020 silver production. So also on the production side of things, Hecla mining, let's take a closer look at their numbers. So following a three-year strike by unionized workers at the Lucky Friday mine, Hecla Mining produced 13.5 million ounces of silver in 2020, the highest since 2016. So again, you think of Barrick produces, let's say, 4.8 million ounces of gold per year across its entire operation. Regarding silver, Hecla just at Lucky Friday produces 13.5 million ounces. So see the interesting kind of difference in numbers there. Odd comparison, but... Just for the sake of us just comparing notes as we go through this, for the year, the company's total silver equivalent production was 40.7 million ounces. Now, that's silver equivalent, so that doesn't really tell the full story. Yeah, as Mark Bristow said, he's not really into silver equivalent or gold equivalent or doing all that sort of thing. We have a quote from Philip S. Baker, Jr., Hecla's president and CEO, and he said, quote, despite the challenges of operating during the pandemic, 2020 marked a year of very strong operational performance with silver production significantly exceeding guidance. Our U.S. silver production was 15% higher than the year before and more than 50% higher than 2018. Now, remember, this is because of strikes that went on for a few years here. Strengthening our position as the United States' largest silver producer, the strong performance allowed Hecla to reduce net debt, increase dividends, and double exploration expenditures while more than doubling last year's cash position. At current prices, we could repeat these results in 2021. So, yeah, these mining companies are minting money, and they are loving these high precious metal prices, which frankly look like they're at least going up another... T- you know, not investment advice, but look like they're going up at least another 20 to 30% this year. Silver especially, I mean, you really get the sense that it's finally coming into its own as an investment vehicle. And so, yeah, so Hecla and James Dines, I heard a rare interview with James Dines last August, and yeah, this was his top pick for silver. He loves Hecla Mining. I guess he knows the CEO, so maybe he's a little biased in that respect. So he was saying, but anyways, so that's the latest with your mining news. Now let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 19th, gold is trading at $1,843.32. That is $14 lower than last week's quote. 
Silver is unchanged at $25.34 per ounce, an uncommon occurrence. Platinum is trading at $1,100.43. That is $39 higher. Palladium is trading $10 higher at $2,377.74 per ounce. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.62 per pound. That is $0.08 lower, but keeping a very strong, respectable price. Aluminum is trading a penny lower at $0.91 per pound. Lead is also trading a penny lower at $0.90 per pound. Nickel is up $0.04 at $8.15 per pound. Tin also higher at $9.75 per pound. And cobalt jumping to $17.23 per pound. That is $0.67 higher than last week's quote. And zinc is $0.06 lower at $1.22 per pound. So precious metals, basically the same or a little slightly lower Slightly, you know, kind of hovering. And industrial metals, basically hovering. A slight drawdown, but from very elevated prices. The narrative continues. uh, Commodity bull market, particularly in the industrial metals, with precious metals lagging. And let's we're going to see if they play catch up. So very, very interesting to watch. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, we have we have our cloud thought leadership panel from the Global Mining Symposium, which includes Nolan Finch, worldwide technical leader for mining at AWS, Dave Linden, general manager at OpsGuru, and Jeremy Tooley, CEO and president of Xeris. And it is a wide-ranging, super interesting discussion on the benefits of cloud computing security, 5G, and connectivity, and the panel is moderated by Carl A. Williams, senior reporter for the Northern Miner, and he introduces everybody more in depth. So with that, I hope you enjoy this, and we'll see you on the other side. interesting uh, panel discussion today and something again is very close to my heart how we can really utilize cloud technologies the internet of things uh, to really improve efficiencies hit the bottom line for mining companies so um, and I think uh, what's really instructive at the moment is with cloud technologies is how in some sense how little is known about them yet they're so pervasive for instance anybody who's used uh, Spotify Netflix you're using cloud technologies. These are how these streaming services are brought to our, to our homes. And, and it's all about data, not to stress it overly. If you don't have it, have the data, if you don't measure it, you can't improve it. I think it was Peter Drucker, an uh, American uh, magic consultant back in the, uh, the 1950s. So it's really about actually how is, this, uh, how is the data collected, how is it stored, and how is it accessed? And as mining companies exploit more and more the Internet of Things, or to use current parlance, the industry, internet of things we're certainly going to see vastly more data generated in the future so how is this data stored and that's really where the cloud technology is coming as as more and more companies are using data more intelligently they need to have uh, access to this data and of course there's issues around accessibility the remoteness a lot of the 
the mining operations that we deal with across the globe. So these are some of the issues that we'll, uh, we'll be touching upon today in the discussion. So I'd like to, uh, without any further ado, introduce our three panelist members, industry experts from right across the spectrum of uh, cloud technologies and specifically how they're using them in the mining industry. So first of all, I'd like to introduce uh, Nolan Finch. He's a worldwide technical leader for mining and Amazon Web Services. Uh, good morning, Nolan, how are you today? Good morning, I'm doing well, thank you, Carl. Excellent. Uh, Nolan joined the Web Services, I believe back in April of this year, and responsible for the formation and execution of the technical strategy in AWS's at Amazon Web Services Mining. Uh, prior to AWS, Nolan worked at Caterpillar for around eight years in roles primarily focused on predictive maintenance, algorithm development, and perception system development for all more automated autonomous systems. Wow, that's a mouthful, Nolan. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I don't know we got to say that once. And Nolan holds a, a master's in mechanical engineering from Stanford University and a bachelor of science in mechanical engineering from Missouri Institute, University of Science and Technology. Welcome, Nolan. Next, we have uh, Jeremy Tooley, president and chief executive of Xeris, or Xeris, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, Jeremy. Yep. Uh, Jeremy is a seasoned IT leader who specializes in transforming organizations. He possesses uh, a passage for applying modern technology and customer experiences to all industries. So we're really going to want to tap into Jeremy's knowledge specifically for the mining and mineral exploration industry today. Jeremy has delivered upon transformer business technology strategies for over 18 years and is deeply experienced in cloud and digital technology. So again, Jeremy, welcome. Thanks, Carl. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, we've got David Linden, General Manager of Ops Guru Canada. Uh, Dave's career started in telecommunications, where he first had ex handled experience on the criticality of reliable communications, and we should know all about that. Dave has since focused on cloud technologies um, through time at AWS as a premier partner, and Google Cloud were responsible for large-scale enterprise clouds adoption across North America. And through assisting a variety of miners across a range of commodities, Dave has developed a deep understanding of how best to apply digital technologies within the mining organization, and the strong belief that, he has a, that mining has a unique opportunity to renew technology infrastructure, connect data systems, enable advanced analytics and artificial intelligence to provide bottom line improvements to the business. Good morning, David. Good morning, and thanks, thanks for having me. Wonderful, lovely, and again, welcome to you all. And I think it's gonna be a, a fascinating discussion today. I will at some stage start to sort of throw some figures your way as well. Uh, recently, uh, I'm sure you're aware that Inmasat came out with a uh, study, a survey study earlier of around 200 mining companies across the globe on their sort of adoption of um, internet of uh, things technology or again, industry internet of things. But first of all, I'd like to sort of maybe ask uh, David, what is cloud computing? Absolutely. So I, I think cloud computing has uh, it has been an interesting journey for folks to understand because I think folks look at their their phones and they see iCloud or they see you know Spotify or they see YouTube or they see all these different things you know Amazon itself and the understanding of what cloud technologies is is really quite difficult to grasp. The other side of the understanding is folks that think, hey, it's just a data center that somebody else is running for me, right? And that really at the moment cannot be further from the truth, right? I don't know the latest numbers, but as an example for me with cloud technology, cloud technology is really having the power of 25, 30,000 engineers building technology for you to build upon. 
right? So I don't know the latest numbers. I, I know AWS is above 25,000 engineers, but that's really the idea is that you're re relying on other folks to develop technology that you can build upon. Um, and so that can be, you know, right, wide ranging from data analytics all the way through to just compute hosting as, as we talked about with the data center side. But it really is about combining all of this deep expertise in various different areas and sort of using these technologies that, you know, Amazon, for example, with AWS builds to sort of use them as Lego blocks or whatever it is to build services that are really not possible unless you had an engineering organization, your own, you know, 25,000 plus people. Fantastic. Wonderfully explained, David. Appreciate it. <laughs> I've been searching for days to try to find out something that is as articulate and as, uh, as, as, as precise and, uh, and, and a fairly brief as well with the definition. Mm -hmm. So, okay, what does this mean for mining companies? I think it was, it's, it's interesting to, to reflect again on some of the results from this in, in the SAT survey back in May this year. Apparently, 95% of the 200 companies that were surveyed for the study said that in some way or another, they're using the cloud, uh, using internet of technologies to tap into that. But I specifically would like to maybe think about what, how is and how can, going into the future, Cloud computing technology specifically help mining companies, and and, and maybe maybe Jeremy, I'll target that that question initially at yourself. I wonder if you could give some sort of thoughts on that area. Where is this significantly being used? Yeah, I think um, for for data transformation, that's the the big one. Data processing, how to track assets, where your assets are, really that transparency of the data overall. I think um, you know the IoT devices across multiple assets. Uh, mining companies want to be able to track and make decisions quickly on the fly. You know, you've got millions of dollars worth of assets here at play. Five minutes of downtime, 10 minutes of downtime, those things cost millions of dollars. So, you know, tracking data and making sure the data is accurate, I think, is, is where mining should be and where it's going. And uh, Nolan, yes. Any, any, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big thing we got here is when you move to the cloud, you're no longer having to manage a lot of this IT infrastructure yourself. So you no longer have to worry about patching servers and a lot of these activities that typically fall outside the core focus of mining companies. So we see a lot of companies come over, they start with moving ERP systems such as SAP from on-premises up to the cloud. So then they no longer have to manage that infrastructure. So they gain some trust and gain some some faith in the cloud at that point and then they start working on data center migrations and then start looking at more operational workloads such as IT machine learning those sorts of things so that's really what we see and i think as we move more towards the operational workloads i think things get a lot more interesting because you start to be able to integrate data from your operations with ERP systems, with other corporate IT systems, and you start getting a much broader view of your operations across the board. And David? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, good insight from that particularly. I mean, uh, the IoT side, I think one of the things I've taken from my time uh, managing mining companies, I think, realistically speaking, as far as IoT is concerned, actually folks have been collecting a lot of information for a long time, right? This is not necessarily new. You know, when you look at the mining systems, we've we've dealt with things like Wenco, things like other technologies that are already existing in the industry. A lot of this information is being collected. I think where cloud drastically changes the game is that instead of talking about keeping this information for 
you know, hours, days, weeks, whatever it may be, all of a sudden the conversation is much broader, right? So we're talking about things like moving ERP systems. That's that's a great example is previously speaking, you'd, you'd be boxed into whatever your capabilities, you know, within that particular server were, for example, uh, with your ERP system. Cloud doesn't have those restrictions, right? So you you can actually do things and say things like, hey, let's, let's collect for all the time, all the sensor points. Um, of course, there's problems, and I thought, I'm sure we'll touch on that uh, in the future. But you know, in general speaking, I mean, it's it's just the scale. It's, it's very, very different, um, and and it empowers a, a lot of different decision making abilities through that power. Coming back to some of these stats from the uh, Insmart uh, survey, which I think are quite instructive in framing the conversation today in terms of where mining companies are using cloud technologies. For instance, around 39% of the correspondents said that uh, they were looking for a return on investment. Uh, probably not the biggest surprise in the world. Again, the same percentage, 39%, we're looking at increased staff productivity. You start to drop a little bit then down to increased throughput for about 36% of them. Health and safety, again, is around about a third of correspondence and improving environmental and social governance aspects. Coming back to your experience, gentlemen, and, and maybe I'll, I'll start with yourself, Nolan. Taking those stats in consideration for the survey, is that representative of your experience of where mining companies are currently using and utilizing cloud technologies? I think the conversations we have, the core IT workloads, I think there's a really good understanding of the value there. And I think people typically are attracted to that. I think there's a healthy amount of skepticism around remote mining sites, given the lack of connectivity. And so we spend a lot of time working through the value. You know, the value happens at the sites. P&L is at the sites. Um, and so you really need to be able to manage those workloads and integrate that back with uh, your corporate operations in order to really glean the value. So as far as I'm concerned, the conversations we've had, I, th I think there's a broad acceptance of the value writ large, and there's some skepticism around integrating mine site operations. And Jeremy, coming to yourself now, again, I understand that you're, you're working currently with Nutrien, uh, one of their mine sites there uh, at an underground operation and with the same caveat around commercial confidence uh, i just wonder if you could again elaborate on the kind of work that you're doing there with uh, nutrient and the kind of benefits that they're experiencing as a result of this interconnectivity that they have with uh, with cloud technologies a lot of the work is done underground so there's a big conversation around connectivity um, how do you handle offline data versus online data and the accuracy of that data when somebody comes out of a mine site so you could be up to three kilometers underground and people are working and you know before it was all on notepads on paper they want a way to digitize this and make sure that the data that they're getting underground when they get to the top is accurate and able to sync up to the cloud and they're actually able to look at that data and analyze it in a in a real way um, and make decisions quickly so that's what we're doing right now is you know working with the potash mines making sure that all the data that's happening underground comes to the top and it's accurate and make decisions quickly. And in fact, Jeremy, I want to stick staying with you for a moment. I, I understand also as well you're working with um, La Prairie Group as well. And again, I wonder if you could just maybe expand a little bit on the type of uh, activities that you're uh, working with them on. Yeah, so we're we're building out logistics and and asset tracking basically. So leveraging you know handheld devices, bring your own devices, and IoT devices, and really being able to track where their assets are in the field, where their trucks are, you know, how many kilometers per day their trucks are going, and also monitoring you know, crane assets. Um, what are their crane operations doing? Where are their cranes during the day? 
um, it's really getting that data, you know, up to the minute accuracy, what's happening in the field, because a lot of these places are remote. And as soon as they connect to uh, to 5G or to, a, to LTE, they're able to connect and sync that data back and again, make decisions very quickly. How far are you down the road with them? Is this a still at the sort of uh, proof of concept stage or is this implementation? So we're just kicking things off here right now. Um, again, it, you know, it, it's the same conversation with most companies right now. It's how do we track our assets? How do we make these decisions based on the data we have? Because to Dave's point, they have reams of data. They have tons of data. And how do we accurately um, do things with that data now? Great. Thank you. Um, so it's a fascinating area. and Clearly, it has a great potential, um, uh, not just as some companies have benefited from it uh, at the moment, but going into the future. But there's always a drawback with technology, as we know. There's always some as a facet to them that causes either problems, um, We've all had some experience. Zoom, Zoom may be a perfect example of that in itself as well. I just wonder if maybe uh, coming to yourself, uh, Nolan, if you could talk maybe to some of the sort of downsides of it. I'm specifically talking about, and this also relates to one of the, the panel we had on Tuesday on cybersecurity and into the young panel where they discussed cybersecurity across the industry. And there seems to be a, an increasing understanding that cybersecurity threats are going to become more and more as, as time goes on and we'd be used technologies more. What are, in your opinion, some of the specific uh, threats posed by companies now using cloud technology to store commercially sensitive uh, information? Cybersecurity concerns will remain independent of where you host your digital workloads. So I think we can all agree that people are going to run digital workloads. It's really the only way to remain competitive. And so at AWS, for example, uh, security is number one and will al always remain the number one priority. And so I think the thing that we would like, to, we always like to point out is we build our physical infrastructure, our software, our security protocols, all the way down to the physical security of our data centers and our regions to serve government agencies, military, healthcare, FinServe, so financial services uh, that have very, very strict security protocols. And so Given our experience with these industries and given our experiences writ large, uh, we provide those same sorts of hardened services for mining customers as well. So when I think about cybersecurity and mining, I tend to think, you know, leveraging the experience of, you know, experienced cloud providers in this space is a huge advantage over trying to, you know, keep up with the threats um, company by company. And David, I wonder if you could provide some of your thoughts as well on this area. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I go back to the original point around, you know, uh, AWS, and I, I don't know the number, but 25,000 folks. I mean, it really comes down to in a security sense, do you, do you trust a, a group that their whole business is keeping others secure? Or do you want to employ, you know, your own 25,000 employees to keep you secure? I think that's that's really the crux of it is, is you're leveraging the, the economy of scale um, that, they, that they have. And realistically speaking, I mean, uh, you know, as, as Nolan was eloquently saying, government, federal agencies, we, we can't afford to lose information through, the, through them as well, right? So I think it's, it's trusting and building on the shoulders of giants, basically. Um, now, on top of that, though, I think there's a critical part to adopting these technologies because cloud to me is, is a complete mind shift change and 
it's a cultural evolution from that perspective. And really what it comes down to and what our organization has tried to specialize in is that foundational journey of adopting this sort of technology, right? So if you don't uh, set up the foundations of this technology right, um, then you can't be surprised when it doesn't go well, right? Because it's by basically building on the, uh, again, it's building on, on, on blocks. So, you know, in the same way that you would normally have to go through and if you're having data centers or, you know, site operations or whatever it is, you make sure that you have UPSs set up, you make sure that you have all the, all the you know, criteria to make sure that you keep your operations running. It's the same concept for, for cloud technologies. It is unbelievably powerful. Um, and I genuinely believe that that'll be the only way to operate very, very soon. Um, but at the same time, if you want to be successful, you really need to make sure you're getting the basics right. Perfect. Thank you. And, and Jeremy, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on your experience, uh, specifically with, say, Nutrient and the Prairie Group. Uh, how they or, or how you working with them have approached the issue of cybersecurity and maybe some of their uh, sort of thoughts from their end on how they view cybersecurity threats? Yeah, I, I, I think what it comes down to, you know, Dave, Dave nailed it is, um, building the, the, the foundation first, um, getting things right, making sure you're having the right conversations. Things happen. Um, you need to really talk through data. What kind of data do you want secure and what can you actually have out there in the open? Having those conversations early with companies, making sure they understand that there are some risks there. They're not big. Um, you're actually more secure going to the cloud now. Like you know, Dave was saying, you have more people managing all your stuff. But again, it's, it's making sure you have those conversations early, setting the framework and just talking through it as a group. I mean, we work agile on a lot of things. You Surprises come up every day. But if you have that communication, you can talk through it um, with your stakeholders. Again, just as a sort of round that side of the conversation off, 49% um, of respondents to the MNOSAT survey cited cybersecurity concerns as a key issue when it came to actually adopting cloud technology. So a half of those 200 global miner, miners uh, expressed concern, of, uh, concern over that issue. So that's something, as, as Nolan pointed out, that, that's not going away anytime soon. That's going to be with us regardless of whatever technology you use. Any, any form of remote communication of, of data has always going to be open to possible uh, hacking. On that front, sort of a nice neat segue into my next area I'd like to discuss is uh, the idea of uh, mining companies building their own systems or going to vendors. Now, uh, I know there's a number of companies out there, uh, obviously uh, Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Storage, uh, Microsoft's Azure, I think Alibaba, IBM Cloud, there are numerous platforms already available out there. So I just want to come in, maybe coming back to yourself, Nolan, there, if only if you could give your thoughts on the sort of uh, that decision process of build your own or just go to the market, find the platforms that are already out there. So ultimately, our position on this, this is a customer decision. So, you know, there's different maturity between different customers. So what our big focus on is making sure they are successful. So when we consult with them, first thing we try to really do is scope the solution. What elements are required? What skill sets do you guys have as a customer? Where would you guys like to take us over the life cycle of the solution? And so at that point, uh, we offer our own services. We have our own professionals that can be paid to build. We have, for folks that are just dipping their toe into looking at the cloud, we have a lot of training offerings. We have digital innovation sessions we can offer. But we ultimately take this in, in concert with the customer. And at some point, if they do not feel they've got the chops to build or do not want to hire enough folks to build, then we bring in folks like Saris, Ops Guru, 
and thousands of other partners across the world that we can help bring out solutions with these customers. And moreover, if they have preferred systems integrators or consultants that they use, then we're happy to work with those guys as well. But in summary, it is a customer solution, or sorry, a customer-driven decision that we, we do not try to influence. And Jeremy, your, your thoughts on this area as well? Go to the market or go to your own? Yeah, we have a lot of conversations around this. I think, you know, what it comes down to is you look at the data that you want to store, the data that you want to capture, how comfortable are you allowing a third party to have that data or do you want to completely own it? What is the licensing cost of a buy off the shelf? You know, over the course of three years, something up front might look good, but what do you need to manage that? What is the cost overall? Um, can you save that by building it yourself and managing it yourself? Now, again, the conversation turns to, do you have the people to help manage that? Um, is the company or the buy off the shelf that you're looking for um, have all the capabilities you need? I think there's a whole bunch of, of items that you really need to go through, and it's not a simple decision. David, uh, maybe some final thoughts on, on this area? Yeah, absolutely. I think both, both of the panelists have really, really hit off most of the points. I think where, where I look at it is it's really not, uh, there's sort of two outcomes that a buy versus build will, will get you to, right? And there's also a, an idea of scale. Um, when we've worked with groups that, you know, are, are sort of mid-tier miners, um, there may just be a, a gap to being able to employ software engineers, being able to employ data engineers, being able to employ machine learning specialists. There may just be too big of a gap to get over that. Um, and in that case, I think a lot of the time a, a buy approach does make a lot of sense. Where you start to see build coming into it, and, I, and I've really seen uh, and I've been impressed with our friends here at Xeris and what they've done in the integrated space, is when you start to think about bespoke systems being integrated, right? So, so when you buy, uh, by definition, you're buying a bunch of different silos for that solution, right? So you have, you know, industry favorites like OSI Soft or Wonderware or whatever it is. You've got these fantastic tools, but the integration across the board is the difficult part. So really, the you know, I don't think there's a there's a clear winner here. It really depends on so many different uh, approaches. But if you're really looking at integrated technologies, right? If you're really looking at, you know, being able to determine from, you know, drill and blast all the way through to the to the port, frankly, if you're being able to look at that holistically, there is a question to, okay, where is the value proposition for us? And when do we start to think about build versus buy? We've got about, uh, we're coming up to about five minutes left. So I'd like to, like the first to sort of start to discuss some of the downsides with this. And, and again, I, I think a lot of our mining colleagues out there will be asking, okay, it's all very well to have this, but what happens when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're in the Yukon, Mm -hmm. uh, discussion yesterday with the uh, uh, on Tizero with the Eagle Mine, Victoria Golan Eagle. You're a remote site. You've got no connectivity. Where do you go from there with the cloud? How how does this work? Maybe maybe uh, David, stay with yourself for a moment if you've got. Sort of yeah, absolutely. So, so my, I mean, my career started in telecommunications. So I've got a little bit of an interesting background in this space. And one of the things that I always noticed is, you know, when I was buying my first circuits, 10 megabit per second was mind blowing, right? And it was, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm not in that industry anymore, but I talked to my friends that are, and they're talking in the terabit per second range now, right? And it's just this, this unbelievable growth. Um, I look at technology innovations like things like Starlink that SpaceX are uh, sort of investing in and, and obviously already 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 operationalizing it, frankly. But I feel like there's this, this pathway of saying that there is now a light at the end of the tunnel to solve this connectivity problem, right? Now, on top of that, that, that solves nicely for sort of open pit 
in nice situations like that. But of course, as Jeremy was talking about with below ground, right, you, you've got you know, various different capabilities that are, that are needing to be built there. And I think there are technologies as well, underground LTEs coming through and a couple of others that are making this problem a little bit of a more interesting conversation in general. But I really do think, you know, the, the connectivity piece is, is something that will be solved. I think that we've we've got that sort of light light at the end of the tunnel now. But yeah, I think from the from the downsides currently, um, you're looking at yeah, edge computing as an example is still in in mind sites absolutely critical when you're relying on you know unreliable microwave or you know whatever whatever connectivity is. And there are technologies now for that as well. AWS has a couple, and I'm sure Nolan we can touch on them. But um, you know there there really is some pretty incredible technologies that are coming out for edge. But also, I think the the connectivity problem is becoming a thing, hopefully very soon, but it's becoming a thing of the past. Um, uh, Jeremy, maybe we could pick up the scene that, Nola, uh, that, that, that um, uh, David mentioned there around edge computing. Now, as I understand it, this this could this is one of the current technologies that could get over this, this downside of, of remote access when you don't have a good or, or any connection to the internet. I wonder if maybe if you could just explain a little bit what, what we mean by edge computing, edge technologies. What, what exactly, how will it facilitate this, this uh, sort of asynchronous connectivity? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you're looking at low latency devices here. So IoT devices. Why we really love and leverage AWS is, you know, they've got some tools, Greengrass, IoT Greengrass um, and AppSync, where, you know, you're in the, the field and you can connect data, IoT, low latency to the cloud. Now, if there's no connectivity, those devices can then communicate to each other and make sure they're always updated. So you've always got that sort of local mesh, that sync going on. And then what happens is when you come into connectivity, all that data is uploaded again. So you're in the edge, you're not connected, but you're making sure that that data is gonna be connected at some point and that accuracy of data. Again, it's, it's the data that matters in, in mining all the time to get that data and maintain its accuracy, that's, that's key. Low latency, um, 5G is going to change the way things work as well in mining, for sure. And Jeremy, so sticking with that for a moment, as I understand it, that the difference between sort of uh, the cloud technology where you have remote servers, whereas edge computing, you have, uh, you co-locate servers with the technologies. Is that correct? Yeah. So again, AWS has, um, you know, a service outposts where you're, you're co-locating things there very much like the, your entire infrastructure, but it's located on site. So again, you've got that sort of accuracy, you can connect um, back to the cloud itself, but it's basically a replica of, of what's going on in the cloud itself. Um, you know, they're advancing that technology. So there's gonna be outposts on VMware. Uh, eventually you're gonna be able to run this on your, own, on your own computers as well. So really tying into this hybrid multi-approach to cloud, because you've got to have your, your data on-prem. You've got to have it in the cloud. There's going to be that mix um, back and forth. And Nolan, uh, any, any thoughts to round off this, this part of the discussion? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think Dave nailed it. This connectivity of your remote mine in the Yukon will be solved. So, you know, we have a project at Amazon as well called Project Kuiper, which looks a lot like the Starlink solution as well. So it's really a question of time. And, my viewpoint on this is I really don't think we should be waiting for high bandwidth, low latency backhaul connections because we can set up very responsive networks on the sites and pair them with self-contained uh, edge compute right now, right? And so you can come up with a lot of topologies where you do a lot of processing on site and then you only send, you know, 
aggregated or sort of end results back to the back office over you know much lower bandwidth pipes. And so I think both Dave and Jeremy did a, a nice job talking about some of our edge offerings where the AWS outpost that's really extending one of our regions out to your mine site that does require a gigabit level pipe connection. But we also offer fully disconnected edge offerings such as Snowball Edge, where you can connect and have fully functioning IT networks on site with AWS services in a self-contained ruggedized box. And so, you know, my big focus right now is working through strategies with our mining customers and our partners to realize a lot of these solutions for these disconnected mine sites or low or weakly connected sites. You've just added another term to my lexicon, snowball edge. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die now though, as we say in Australia on that on, <laughs> on a number of occasions. I'd like to sneak in another, another final question: the costs of this. Now, I, again, coming back to the Infosat survey back in May, some of the figures they put out there. But currently, the uh, according to the, uh, the, the 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 study there, that over the past three years, between cloud computing, cybersecurity, and the internet or industry internet of things. Um, they're talking about around anywhere from about the 4% to 6% of total budget is spent in this area. But then they do say that over the next three years, the respondents, this is going to be potentially double. So you're talking going from about, about 7% up to about 10% of overall budgets on, on these type of cybersecurity, IoT, cloud computing. I just wonder from your experience and maybe staying with yourself, Nolan, what kind of cost are we talking about for an overall investment for a company? I cover with the fact that obviously it's not one size fits all and it's going to be a range of things. But if you can give some thoughts, some insights into the costs of, uh, for companies. I'm not 100% familiar with the statistics you cite, but I would sort of spend really tracking with the value of the data and the value of the solutions, not with necessarily the increasing cost across the board. And so our experience has been a lot of conversations with customers about moving to the cloud, start with reducing costs. And so we, we can give you many examples of Dow Jones being one where they moved all of their data centers over into the AWS cloud and then did a very detailed study of it, reported a 25% savings over leasing facilities and operating these data centers themselves. So I think, it's, it's a bit of a red herring to say cloud's going to cost you more. I think what we're looking at is utilization of digital services is increasing. So there's going to be increased spend because there's increased return on investment. And then you got to look at where you can get economies of scale and the best value. And I truly believe cloud provides that in spades. David and Jeremy, I'd like to have your input on this, but I wonder if you could just keep it brief. So maybe David, if you could just give a sort of very brief sort of a overview of your thoughts on this area. Back to the, you know, the start of where our organization believes everyone needs to be, and this is not just mining, this is across the across the board, foundations matter, right? So um, AWS has got the ability, for example, to actually set a budget on a particular use case, right, at that level, right? Um, now, if we get the foundations right and you have these abilities to put in these, you know, controls and financial um, guardrails, if you will, you're actually definitely going to save money relative to where you are right now. So there's there's that particular sort of area that is, um, yeah, I think we, we, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to rattle on about how foundations matter for, for years probably. But yeah, in, in essence, I think the important part is this doesn't have to be expensive. The other thing I would challenge whoever you do end up using to, to help you with this journey, I would challenge for them to say how they've done it before and how they the lowest cost you can get to that 
initial value proposition, right? Because as Nolan had said earlier, I mean, you've got to build trust in this solution as a business, right? When no one's going to come in and say, all right, now everything is going to be replaced by cloud. And I, I think you, the statistics sort of cite that. Currently, we're sitting at 4%. We're going to be growing to 8%. And I hope I got that right there. But that'll align with trust. Um, and another thing that's really important as well is as you start to get into these sort of data analytics or artificial intelligence or whatever it may be, um, is actually to measure the outcomes on a bottom line basis, right? So, I mean, we've we've seen some unbelievable technology usages in in AWS where you can actually see an algorithm, for example, really moving the bottom line in, a, in an operation, right? So, realistically speaking, it's not only about the cost of the actual opportunity. I'd actually be looking at it and saying, can we actually challenge AWS to make us money? Right, as opposed to actually cost us some, and I think that's that's where in the future, and even right now, frankly, a lot of a lot of the groups are already at um, is it's it'd cost them money if you were to turn it off. Um, so it's a it's a funny little uh, little situation we're in already. Well, Nolan, David, and I believe Jeremy's back on as well. So I'll, I'll thank you all very much, gentlemen, for your time today. I think it's been a a fascinating insight to an area that's only going to increase more and more, and I think. Um, uh, you, you've elucidated extremely well how mining companies are currently using it. I think how, how it's only going to get more and more traction going so forward. So again, many, many thanks indeed for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for having us. Keeping you on the bleeding edge of the mining industry. Here we are at the Northern Miner Podcast. And do not forget, if you want to be in our annual PDAC special edition supplement, you have about three days, maybe two and a half now. And so just go to our contact page, look for Joe and Michael, and they will be happy to help you. And lots of exciting stuff in store. Stay tuned. And until next week, take care.